Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dr. J's American Passages. I'm Dr. J. Today, I'll be reading a passage from Washington Irving's story, Rip Van Winkle. The story itself is a familiar part of American culture. A genial, somewhat idle husband goes hunting with his dog in the Catskill Mountains of New York, comes upon a strange party of oddly dressed men playing at ninepins, drinks some of their liquor, falls asleep, and returns to his village when he awakens only to find that he'd slept 20 years. It's a comic story with much of the humor involving Rip's status as a hen-pecked husband with a nagging wife, though this aspect doesn't much figure into the story's place in American lore. We think of the story today as having taken place way back when. The odd players at ninepins, after all, are connected to the 17th century explorer Henry Hudson and his Dutch sailors, whose explorations led to the establishment of the Dutch along the Hudson River from Manhattan to Albany. Rip Van Winkle is a descendant of the Dutch colonist, and Irving focuses on his Dutch culture. Close attention, though, places the story later than the time when New York was New Netherland. After presenting the Dutch background, Irving tells us, just as the story proper begins, that it is set when New York was still a province of England. The change from New Netherland to New York took place in 1664, setting Rip Van Winkle as taking place sometime after that, which could still be way back when. But we learn that when Rip returns to his village, that the time of the story is not that far back, for during the 20 years Rip slept, the American Revolution takes place. Furthermore, he returns on an election day that features party factionalism between the Federalist Party of Alexander Hamilton and the Democratic-Republican Party of Thomas Jefferson. The first elections featuring these two parties, or any parties at all, were held in 1795 and 1796. Going back 20 years, Rip then falls asleep just before the onset of the American Revolutionary War in 1776. Rip Van Winkle was first published in 1819, just 25 years after Rip's fictional return. For its first readers, then, Rip Van Winkle didn't take place way back when, but rather in their own living past. That is, Rip Van Winkle is a story of the beginnings of our country, written at a time when our country was still fairly young. Its place in American lore doesn't think of it that way either, even less so than it thinks of it as a story of a hen-pecked husband. But that's how Irving thought of it, and how I want to think about it in this episode. What was Washington Irving, himself named for the first president of the United States, thinking about the United States when he wrote Rip Van Winkle. I'll take up the story on the day Rip has returned to his village. Everything is different. The people are dressed different. Rip doesn't recognize their faces. 
the buildings have changed. The tidy inn upon whose porch Rip used to idle away his time, built of yellow bricks brought from Holland, has transformed into a large rickety wooden building with great gaping windows, some of them broken, now named the Union Hotel. Rip's own house is desolate and abandoned, its roof fallen in, its door off its hinges. But while much has changed, some things haven't, and it's in the interplay of change and continuity that much of the meaning of Rip Van Winkle resides. Let's listen as Rip leaves his empty, desolate house and searches out his old haunt, the village inn. From Rip Van Winkle by Washington Irving Rip now hurried forth and hastened to his old resort, the village inn, but it too was gone. A large, rickety wooden building stood in its place, with great gaping windows, some of them broken, and mended with old hats and petticoats, and over the door was painted, The Union Hotel by Jonathan Doolittle. Instead of the great tree that used to shelter the quiet little Dutch inn of yore, there now was reared a tall, naked pole, with something on the top that looked like a red nightcap, and from it was fluttering a flag, on which was a singular assemblage of stars and stripes. All this was strange and incomprehensible. He recognized on the sign, however, the ruby face of King George, under which he had smoked so many a peaceful pipe. But even this was singularly metamorphosed. The red coat was changed for one of blue and buff. A sword was held in the hand instead of a scepter. The head was decorated with a cocked hat, and underneath was painted in large characters, General Washington. There was, as usual, a crowd of folk about the door, but none that Rip recollected. The very character of the people seemed changed. There was a busy, bustling, disputatious tone about it, instead of the accustomed phlegm and drowsy tranquility. He looked in vain for the sage Nicholas Vetter with his broad face, double chin, and fair long pipe, uttering clouds of tobacco smoke instead of idle speeches, or Van Bummel, the schoolmaster, doling forth the contents of an ancient newspaper. In place of these, a lean, bilious-looking fellow, with his pockets full of handbills, was haranguing vehemently about rights of citizens, elections, members of Congress, Liberty, Bunker's Hill, heroes of 76, and other words, which were a perfect Babylonian jargon to the bewildered Van Winkle. The appearance of Rip, with his long grizzled beard, his rusty fowling piece, his uncouth dress, and the army of women and children at his heels, soon attracted the attention of the tavern politicians. They crowded round him, eyeing him from head to foot with great curiosity. The orator bustled up to him, and, drawing him partly aside, inquired on which side he voted. 
Rip stared in vacant stupidity. Another short but busy little fellow pulled him by the arm and, rising on tiptoe, inquired in his ear whether he was federal or Democrat. Rip was equally at a loss to comprehend the question when a knowing, self-important old gentleman in a sharp-cocked hat made his way through the crowd, putting them to the right and left with his elbows as he passed, and planting himself before Van Winkle with one arm akimbo, the other resting on his cane, his keen eyes and sharp hat penetrating, as it were, into his very soul, demanded in an austere tone, what brought him to the election with a gun on his shoulder and a mob at his heels, and whether he meant to breed a riot in the village? Alas, gentlemen, cried Rip, somewhat dismayed, I am a poor, quiet man, a native of the place, and a loyal subject of the king, God bless him. Here a general shout burst from the bystanders. A Tory, a Tory, a spy, a refugee, hustle him, away with him. It was with great difficulty that the self-important man in the cocked hat restored order, and having assumed a tenfold austerity of brow, demanded again of the unknown culprit what he came there for and whom he was seeking. The poor man humbly assured him that he meant no harm, but merely came there in search of some of his neighbors, who he used to keep about the tavern. Well, who are they? Name them. Rip bethought himself a moment and inquired, Where's Nicholas Vedder? There was a silence for a little while when an old man replied in a thin, piping voice, Nicholas Vedder? Why, he is dead and gone these eighteen years. There was a wooden tombstone in the churchyard that used to tell all about him, but that's rotten and gone too. Where's Brom Dutcher? Oh, he went off to the army in the beginning of the war. Some say he was killed in the storming of Stony Point. Others say he was drowned in a squall at the foot of Antony's nose. I don't know. He never came back again. Where's Van Bummel, the schoolmaster? He went off to the wars, too, was a great militia general, and is now in Congress. Rip's heart died away at hearing of these sad changes in his home and friends and finding himself thus alone in the world. Every answer puzzled him, too, by treating of such enormous lapses of time and of matters which he could not understand. War, Congress, Stony Point. He had no courage to ask after any more friends, but cried out in despair, there's nobody here, no Rip Van Winkle. Oh, Rip Van Winkle, exclaimed two or three. Oh, to be sure, that's Rip Van Winkle yonder, leaning against the tree. Rip looked and beheld a precise counterpart of himself as he went up the mountain, apparently as lazy and certainly as ragged. The poor fellow was now completely confounded. He doubted his own identity and whether he was himself or another man. In the midst of his bewilderment, 
The man in the cocked hat demanded who he was and what was his name. God knows, exclaimed he at his wit's end. I'm not myself. I'm somebody else. That's me yonder. No, that's somebody else got into my shoes. I was myself last night, but I fell asleep on the mountain, and they've changed my gun, and everything's changed, and I'm changed, and I can't tell what's my name or who I am. The bystanders began now to look at each other, nod, wink significantly, and tap their fingers against their foreheads. There was a whisper also about securing the gun and keeping the old fellow from doing mischief. At the very suggestion of which, the self-important man with the cocked hat retired with some precipitation. At this critical moment, a fresh, comely woman pressed through the throng to get a peep at the gray-bearded man. She had a chubby child in her arms, which, frightened at his looks, began to cry. Hush, Rip, cried she. Hush, you little fool. The old man won't hurt you. The name of the child, the air of the mother, the tone of her voice, all awakened a train of recollections in Rip's mind. What is your name, my good woman? asked he. Judith Gardner. And your father's name? Ah, poor man, Rip Van Winkle was his name, but it's twenty years since he went away from home with his gun, and never has been heard of since. His dog came home without him, but whether he shot himself or was carried away by the Indians, nobody can tell. I was then but a little girl. Rip had but one more question to ask, but he put it with a faltering voice. Where's your mother? Oh, she too had died but a short time since. She broke a blood vessel in a fit of passion at a New England peddler. There was a drop of comfort, at least, in this intelligence. I'll stop with this excellent joke, though perhaps not one we probably can laugh at today. So much is new since the American Revolution. A new flag flies with stars and stripes. The people of the village are bustling and disputatious. A politician harangues a crowd and passes out handbills. There are political parties, something new in the world. There is a Congress and elections to choose its members. Rip doesn't know what any of it means, and I'm not sure I know what it all means, at least not in this story. I think I know what it all means in history. I've been taught American history, and I live in the United States of America, after all. But this passage puzzles me all the more for all that. But before we consider what these changes mean in Irving's presentation of them, let's pause to consider what hasn't changed. There is still a Rip Van Winkle, first of all, a figure not puzzling as he's just the son of our Rip Van Winkle, some things never change. A continuity that is puzzling, though, is the face on the sign of what was once an inn and is now the Union Hotel. Before the Revolution, it was the face of King George, and it is the same face still, 
but the figure's coat has now changed from red to blue. The king's scepter has been replaced with a sword. The head is now crowned with a cocked hat, and a new name has been printed under it, General Washington. These secondary changes seem to me quite important, of greatest importance, in fact, but yet they are presented as secondary changes. The primary figure, the face, hasn't changed. But why not? Isn't a president different than a king, even if they're both named George? And what about the things that have changed? Shouldn't they be changes for the better? But no. The inn is now the Union Hotel. Remember that before the Civil War, the United States was informally called the Union, and thus the new hotel seems representative of the new United States, with a new proprietor with a good American name, Jonathan Doolittle. But though the hotel cannot yet be twenty years old, it is a rickety wooden building, with broken windows mended with old hats and petticoats, the flag flies upon a naked pole, which has replaced a great tree that used to shelter the quiet little Dutch inn of yore. Described this way, the pole and its flag don't seem an improvement, even if the pole is capped with a red liberty cap, modeled on the caps worn by freed slaves in ancient Rome and adopted by the revolutionaries of both America and France. The politician is a lean, bilious fellow, but while politicians today can be an unattractive lot, surely in the days of Hamilton and Jefferson they were admirable fellows. But lean, in relationship to politicians, brings to mind nothing so much as the lean and hungry Cassius of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, hardly an admirable figure. The people are busy and disputatious. Busy, sure, that's America. But disputatious? That doesn't sound so good. Strangers Rip has never seen want to know what political party he belongs to, as if it's any of their business. Bystanders momentarily think he's a Tory, that he is un-American, and want him run out of town. A self-important gentleman wears a cocked hat just like Washington, but when things get dicey, he slinks off. What are we to make of all of this? It seems like a gentle political satire written about America today, one that would please some Americans and displease others, but it isn't the political satire written today about America today. It was written more than 200 years ago when the United States had only existed for less than 30 years, and is set in the time of the very beginning of the United States. Is the America we see about us today factious, disputatious, even rickety, not something new, but the America that's always been? If so, I find it an oddly comforting thought. Maybe the United States has always been a rickety wooden building, despite the great marble buildings of our capital. Who knows, perhaps America today is even a better building than it was then. 
Perhaps we've mended at least some of its broken windows with something better than old hats and petticoats, though we've no doubt not mended them all. Until next time, I'm Dr. J.